Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast. And we have an awesome guest joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina this week. Um, she, her name is Jennifer Arrington. By day, she is a lawyer. And after her nine to five and then some is over, she likes to hit the links. And uh, you can also find her on Instagram at birdiegirl underscore fit. Uh, kind of how we met and crossed paths. Um, just enjoying the game and scrolling and uh, struck up a conversation and realized she had a pretty awesome story to tell. So, uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us this week. How are you? Yeah, good. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I, you know, we always like to start off our, our episodes by just kind of learning a little about where you came from and uh, what home course you're at and uh, kind of how you got into the game of golf. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I grew up, was fortunate enough to grow up on a golf course. So uh, TPC Piper Glen is kind of my home course. That's where I learned to pick up the game, play a lot with my dad. Um, so that's kind of where I got started. And like you said, I'm a lawyer, so very busy during the day. And then kind of when I have some free time and when I can make time, definitely I'm a huge, huge golf fan. Sure. So now being a lawyer, does that kind of lend you to just weekend golf or are you able to during the week as well and, and kind of hit the links whenever you get some, get a minute? Honestly, it's kind of whenever I can find time. So typically it is on the weekends, but if I can run out during lunch, hit, even roll a few putts. I mean, honestly, even in the office is great too. Um, but I try and go at least one time after work and then on the weekend, just kind of whenever I can. But um, being a lawyer, I, so I do trial, trial work. So that's very, very much an all hands-on, all the time job. So sometimes it's hard to find time, but I definitely try and make it. Absolutely. A, a true golf nut rolling putts in her office. We like to hear that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you said you grew up in the game a little bit. And um, when did that bug first bite you as a kid that you, you kind of realized, man, this is something I love to do? Right. So I love watching my dad play. He is, from, from the time I remember I was just a little girl, he is my inspiration um, kind of on and off the course. He is what got me started in the game. And probably when I was maybe six or seven, I remember first going out with him. I was fortunate enough to take a few lessons, but he really taught me kind of everything that I know. And um, that's kind of, like I said, where everything started. And then just kind of picked up from there. I actually took about 10 or 15 years off. I didn't play at all. So kind of when I got into middle school, high school, I switched to other sports. Uh, I was a competitive figure skater, dancer. I did some fencing. So I did a lot of different sports and for whatever reason, just kind of stopped golfing and kind of fell away from it. And then probably two or three years out of law school, um, when I had a little bit more time and a little bit more money, I kind of picked it back up. And um, since then, that's all I've been doing. That's, that's, it's absolutely, absolutely golf nut, obsessed with it, love it every chance I get. So, you know, I try not to have many regrets in life and I won't say I regret not playing over the last 10 or 15 years. I wish I would have. But it's okay. It gives me a lot of inspiration to work and kind of make up that time. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll jump in there. My name is Dante. I'm from New Jersey yeah. as well, part of Enjoy the Walk. I kind of want to agree, agree with you on that one um, of trying not to regret stuff as well because I, you know, didn't get into golf or more competitive golf until about five years ago. Played sports all my life and basically kind of played golf when I could with my dad. And it wasn't until like about five years ago when, you know, I kind of busted my knee playing lacrosse. Like I was like, Ooh, I got that itch and then caught that bug and then started playing too. So it's kind of almost to go off as to where, you know, like you wouldn't be where you're at today 
um, without getting a golf or taking that break as well. So I just kind of wanted to do right. in there. Yeah, I love it too. <laughs> yeah, no, just like you were saying, I really think, you know, sometimes when you take that time off when you're injured or when you kind of can't get out and play, I mean, even now in the winter, you know, if it's colder, if it's snowing, if something's holding you back, that's kind of what pushes you and really drives that home that you want to get out there. You know, for, if you're lucky enough to just have great weather all the time and just sometimes I think you can kind of take it for granted, but it's when you don't have it or you realize that's what you want to do. That's a great motivator to get out there and practice, um, really give it your all. And, and that's, that's all you want to do. I've played in 20 degree weather just because I wanted to go out and play. That's exactly. Like if I can find a chance to play if there's no, no snow in the ground and like the course I belong to all our guys we're mutters so if there's snow snow in the ground <laughs> we're out there playing yeah. we don't we're care out, right. i mean it's pretty much mainly like the camaraderie of that that's why i like the course i belong to so much it's just there's always someone to play with and you know you get that you get that itch you got to make sure you're getting out there and playing whether it's 20 degrees indoor or on a perfect sunny day right yeah, I've spoken like a true northeasterner. I know we uh, <laughs> school in Pennsylvania. We uh, we take every last chance we can get with uh, usually only about four or five months of solid weather before it starts to turn on us. <laughs> <laughs> I know I would probably be doing the same thing. Sometimes I see videos or things on Instagram, or you know, I see the weather, I see snow, and it's God. I just I don't envy you, but I would do the same thing. Twenty degree, I'd be out there. I saw you. Uh, I saw like your post. It looks like you guys had a big um outing the other day with a bunch of yes. uh, local um you know instagrammers and you know charlotte golfers it looked like what was the temperature down there when you guys were playing it seemed a little chilly yeah so when we went out um, i was supposed to be a little bit warmer it ended up being about 50. um we get some wind sometimes so it didn't didn't quite get there and i was definitely underdressed um uh, <laughs> but that's okay you know you just kind of put up with it but uh, it was definitely cooler. And that was actually up in uh, Statesville, which is about an hour north of Charlotte. So Okay. What was that? Was it for like an occasion or what was that about? Yeah, so that was actually part of the amateur tour that I planned. It's called the Bag Tour or the Below Average Golf Association. It's a really, really cool thing. Um, it started local and it's actually spreading to other states. We have players in Florida, uh, New York, California, North South Carolina, Georgia. And basically the idea behind it is that everyday golfers, if you're beginner, if you're scratch, if you're somewhere in the middle, you can join and get sponsored. So there's a bunch of different companies that kind of look at the golfers, pick the golfer that they want to sponsor. And then as you go through the season, uh, you play head to head matches. So you can play one on one, or sometimes it's a two versus two, or a giant, you know, outing like we had in teams of four whatnot it's all match play and you pick an item before you play and that's kind of the item that's the wager and then at the end of it the loser buys the winner's item from a sponsor so it's a great kind of organization to help sponsors grow your brand get you know equipment and golf stuff it's really really cool a lot of the companies honestly are fantastic i mean a lot of, a lot of companies that i didn't know about some i did know about for example a dormy workshop i actually was following before i joined the tour and they're awesome. They worked with me. They helped design custom head covers. Uh, a lot of the companies will reach out directly to the golfer and just kind of talk to them about what they like, what their interests are, come up with the design. Uh, there's Billy Company. They actually do custom ball markers and divot tools. Really, really cool stuff going on. Um, and it's growing pretty quickly. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it, it just seems like, especially in today's day and age, with with the Instagram being thrown around, it seems like the the culture of of golf, whether it's on the bag tour or or just people getting out together, it it seems like there's a lot more opportunities for people to network within that kind of social media realm and say, hey, listen, that course isn't too far from me, and I see a lot of people, you know, playing every day or carrying their clubs or whatever it may be. And it's like it's offered, it seems like, in the amateur golf realm, a lot more opportunities for people to network and get together and play, which, which seems like what the back tour is kind of, you know, uh, aiming to do, which is pretty awesome. Absolutely. It, you know, we're very competitive with each other, but behind closed doors, we're very, very, we're friends. I mean, we go out together. We go to the range together. It's a lot of fun. I mean, if you stand it long enough, you end up playing each other so many times again and again. So, you know, it, it's at the end of the day, we are friends and we all just love the game. We love competing. We love golf, but it's a great, uh, it's a great opportunity, like you said, to meet new people, um, but also form lasting friendships. And, you know, before I joined the tour, it, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult about who you go out with and, you know, who you play with. And obviously, you know, being a female, that's a smaller pool of people that I can go out and play with. I mean, I, I didn't have a list of people just say, hey, I feel like playing nine or 18. Are you down? So this is a great opportunity for me to meet more people where even though we're playing matches and competing almost every weekend, if I wanted to go out and just go to the range or putt or play nine, I could hit any one of them up. And I'm sure they'd be more than happy to come out. So it's, it's a really neat experience like you said to open up a network and just have people who love the game uh, that's awesome and I think you said something also that, that you know I think we we both said we kind of wanted to get into if you know the female side of things and and getting into whether it's leagues or playing with with other females in the area I'm, I think Dante and I had talked about a little before the show started and it was like you know I know from our perspective there's always men's leagues and there's always different Saturday matches to get in with different men. But when it comes to the women's side of things, what do you see, at least in your area, as far as opportunities for women in league play or just, you know, everyday play? And, and how have you maybe struggled a little bit with, with finding consistent people to play with? So there's really not a whole lot kind of where we are for women, which is unfortunate. Um, I think it has gotten a lot better. I think the back tour is a great opportunity. And that's something that I would be interested in and kind of opening up and marketing to the future to recruit and bring in more female players. Um, but unless you're part of a country club or you know somebody, you know a female already, it's kind of hard. And, you know, Instagram has been fantastic, like you said, to kind of grow the awareness and meet other people in the area. Um, right now, there's only one other female on tour uh, that I've played a match with. And so the hope is with time and with Instagram in the bag, maybe to find other females or maybe start a league or something. But um, right now, it's it's kind of difficult. So there's not there's not a whole lot of opportunity. I don't know if Isaiah can maybe speak to this because um, I'm not really sure of where Liberty University stood as far as having a women's golf team. But I know from where uh, Dante and I went to college at Marywood University, we had just started a women's golf team. Goodness, probably two years before I graduated. And so many women, even in our like campus university, were really unaware that golf was maybe even an option for them as far as like a sport to play, you know, it was kind of like, um, Oh, like women play golf too. It, it was just, at least that's the way I saw it being approached. Um, and I guess, I don't know, maybe if you can touch on this based on your other sports that you had played, you know, in between uh, when you played it as a kid and then when you picked it back up, um, what's kind of the mentality maybe between uh, golf and women and how you see women looking at the game of golf, you know, bit when you were back in college and maybe how they differ from looking at it today. 
So uh, when I was in college, I went to Davidson, and I was unaware that, honestly, there was any female golfers at all at Davidson. I don't even think they had a team when I was there. Um, I think they might have started one since I left. Um, it's been a few years. But um, kind of in Charlotte, in the area, there's a couple of schools where they do have very strong female golf programs. They have Queen's University, uh, UNC Charlotte. Uh, so it, it's, the presence is growing, but at the collegiate level when I went to school, it really didn't exist. And so kind of now out in the community, I feel like there's kind of a gap between the collegiate players who are, you know, amateur on track to potentially have a profession in golf and the people like me who just enjoy it, who are amateurs and maybe who don't have, you know, the professional experience or didn't have a collegiate experience. So there is, there's kind of a gap between those two groups and, you know, hopefully with time we can help kind of close that or, you know, if people in college maybe don't go on to pursue a career and end up just being really good golfers in the area, and then up and comers and, you know, beginners and intermediates, and maybe we can start filling in those gaps with just a greater number of female golfers, um, you know, ho hopefully. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know in my time at Liberty, we didn't have a, a women's program there, but there certainly were plans to expand and add a women's program. Um, it's, it's really unfortunate just how little awareness is even out there for even the men's side of golf. Um, in my time, I felt like people didn't even know that we had a men's team. They were aware of a club program, uh, and they just assumed mm -hmm. that Liberty was a club program as well. So not even having a women's program doesn't help the situation there. But um, can you touch base on, you know, just the – I guess your viewpoint on the difficulty level for a woman to earn a full scholarship or a scholarship of any um, level within collegiate athletics for golf, because from our perspective for men, I mean, we view it as difficult because at the division one level, you've got to shoot, you know, say average 73 every year to maintain a spot. But for women, I'd imagine that number is, you know, quite a little bit higher. So could you touch base on, you know, the, the opportunities that would be there for women in that, uh, in that field? Yeah, you know, I think um, just even thinking back to high school, so I went to a local private school and didn't even think the opportunity was there for women. And, and honestly, I can't even, if they even started a women's program, I don't know. So even starting at, you know, middle high school, it's just an overall, I think, awareness and I think it'd be great if they would do golf in lower school, middle school, just as part of PE and just kind of begin that awareness at a very young age, because unless you have a family member who golfs or unless, you know, your parents are going to put you in golf, it's not like something that's basketball or swimming or something that's easily accessible. Um, you know, even through first teen programs, I'm a part of that as well. Even starting earlier, raising the awareness, getting more women involved in it from an earlier stage to start that training and start and show a long a lot much longer period of commitment to it and hopefully increase their skill level but I mean there's not a lot of female players there's not a lot of scholarship opportunities and I think just because you know women are underrepresented in golf and you know I hope that changes that's a that's actually a great point about the PE in the middle schools and the high school level because even when I was in school, I don't remember ever them talking about golf. So I think if you bring it early, earlier on in their life, you know, they'll make it more attracted to it, to the game of golf. The only reason I got into the game of golf is my dad played and he put a club in my hand around like nine, but I only played here and there. 
but yeah, to kind of just be like, Hey, it's, it's okay. Cause I guess, you know, a lot of people still think it's like the, you know, the old man country club game, you know, like uh, the rich people's game, but it's, in my opinion, it's drifting away from that. There's, I've seen so many more of my friends, you know, trying to get into the game now at a later age, but I feel like if you can just introduce it at a younger age in more of a group setting, you can definitely pique more interest in both men and women's. Absolutely. And I think, you know, from an athletic standpoint, you know, if they're not going to offer scholarships, if they don't have the opportunities, school's arguments are going to be, well, we just don't have the players. We don't have the interest. So why would we offer these scholarships? Why would we set aside resources and recruit coaches and spend the time and resources to find players if they don't exist? But if you would supply them with a much larger amount of interest and talent, which, like you said, could begin at a much you know, younger age and grow uh, awareness and talent, then it would be really hard to make that argument anymore that, you know, they can't offer scholarships or, um, you know, try, try to keep that kind of gap and, you know, to, to break down those barriers, basically. I think would be um, if we could start showing schools that, yes, there, there's plenty of women that are very talented, very interested. Tell me why not. Exactly. And I think you touched on it a little bit earlier with saying kind of, and I think from what I've seen around the Maryland area as well, I think the first T is really getting to a point where they're, you know, starting to gain a little bit of notoriety between the junior, like the junior, junior level of kids who might not have been able to ever think about the game of golf before. And, you know, they're bridging that gap between, oh, well, if my dad didn't tell me, then I don't really know what golf is. And then the kids that kind of are, you know, oh, like, what's golf? I want to know more. So tell us a little bit more about your involvement with the first tee and kind of, and what the first tee really does within the greater Charlotte area. Sure. So uh, the first tee is basically, it's a nonprofit organization for uh, students, kids from three, four, five through high school. And they offer different programs. Uh, depending on your age, depending on your skill, and it can be a weekend program, it can be a week-long program, it can be a summer program, and so my involvement is I'm a coach and a volunteer, so sometimes on the weekends I'll go out and participate in weekend leagues. Uh, I like age is usually about 7 to 10, 7 to 11, um, and we just help. We help them hit, and they learn chipping, driving, putting. Uh, first, it kind of stands for having and growing awareness of the game as well as qualities of respect, confidence, really kind of instilling some core values in these kids as they're growing up and learning the game. Qualities, obviously, that will apply directly to the game as well as life skills. So uh, my involvement essentially is I'm a coach and a volunteer, and I work with, you know, work one-on-one with the kids who come out for the leagues. That's awesome. Now, what kind of size of, um, from what I've always understood, Charlotte, the greater Charlotte area is sort of a very metropolitan growing uh, area. How, how large is your first tee itself? Like how many kids do you guys kind of see? And is it normally like a class schedule or, you know, do you guys meet like once or twice a, a month or how do you really run the first tee in that aspect? And how many kids do you usually get to see within like a, a monthly basis? So first year, Greater Charlotte has a couple different courses that we work with. Uh, Charles Sifford, we have Springfield. So we actually go North and South Carolina. So Charlotte's right on the border between North and South Carolina. So we can kind of go into Fort Mill as well. So there's about four or five courses and locations that the first year of Greater Charlotte works with. And then at each location, that's broken down into different programs. So for instance, uh, the Charles Sifford, the Revolutionary Park, 
uh, location that I work at in Charlotte, probably 100, 200 kids. And on any given Saturday in the morning, might be 20 to 40, 50, somewhere around there. And we'll have different stations. So when I'm actually on site working a Saturday morning, I'll be working a group of students and kids who are maybe 10, 12. So the ratio is great. It's, um, it's, they, they staff enough coaches and volunteers with the kids. So it's, you can spend one-on-one time um, you know, with, each, with each child. So that's pretty cool. And then it runs year long. So it depends kind of on school year or during the summer. Summer is obviously more intensive during the day. School year, you're going to have programs more after school or on the weekends. And like I said, they have PAR, Eagle, uh, birdie groups, depending on the skill level, depending on the age. So it's, it's really, you can kind of customize it to what fits the student's schedule the best. And then just the volunteers, whatever time we have available or we can make available, we'll sign up for a program. And uh, usually it's weekly. Sure. No, that's awesome. So uh, you kind of touched on a little bit of like the, those nine core values that, that the first T uh, really likes to teach and, and stuff like that. So what, what's one of those nine core values that you really see resonating the most between the, between the kids and something that they pick up? you know, maybe on the first time they ever come or something that they just, they, they will forever take away the most out of, out of what you do with the work at the first tee. Yeah. I think of all the values, I mean, they're all equally important, but I think confidence is extremely important. Um, you know, golf is not, it's not a team sport. It's not like you can go out there and if you mess up or if you hit a bad shot or if you miss a basket, you can kind of rely on somebody else to come back and help you out. I mean, it's just, it's you and your golf ball, and that's it. So I think from that aspect, it's really interesting to kind of start instilling early that you have to believe in yourself. You have to have that confidence. And, you know, if you hit a bad shot, to be able to rebuild it and rebound, so to speak, and come back and get right back in the game. So I think that of all the values, I, I, I definitely like confidence the most. That's something that I, you know, that I work on all the time for sure. Absolutely. And I think that yeah. can be like taken on and off the golf course so quickly, whether you're in a business meeting and, and have to give a presentation that, you know, is a, is a big one for your company and you got to muster up the courage and the confidence to, to really nail down this, this presentation. And then um, we've, we've talked about it in this podcast. It seems like a lot uh, the word confidence and just talking about um, amateurs and their, and their play of hoping to break 90 or break 80 and getting the confidence to do that. But then also the guys on tour, we even uh, Dante and I had, you know, had mentioned last week with Abraham answer uh, taking on tiger at the president's cup and the confidence that takes to, to stare down, you know, one of the world's best. Uh, that, that's a, that's a pretty great, pretty great word to choose and, and to have as a, as a key uh, element in the first tee. Absolutely. Yeah. I say it. I, we bring it up all the time and, I feel like Isaiah can speak on it too, but on an amateur level to like a pro level, sometimes I feel like the amateurs have to come in and have maybe a little bit more confidence because, you know, their swings may not be as sound as, you know, and consistent as what the pros have. So, you know, going back to trying to break a hundred, break 90 or even break 80, you get those bad thoughts in your head. You're most likely going to have that bad shot. But if you go in with a more confident swing thought, you're most likely going to have a positive outcome. Positive thoughts, positive outcome. And I guess Isaiah can speak on it more on a pro level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in golf and anything you do in life, I mean, you can certainly use the saying, uh, fake it till you make it. Or, um, <laughs> you know, like we've been talking about, just 
overall having confidence in every aspect of your game. And um, one of the biggest things I noticed this year was I played a lot of par threes that were 220 over water. And it's very difficult to be confident over those shots. But what you can do is select a club that you can be confident in. Whereas, you know, stepping on those holes, I'd normally have to hit a three iron, 220 over water. There's not much you can be confident in with that thin of an iron in your hand. But if you can lay up with a five or a four iron, hit it to the front of the green, you can take control of the circumstances and be confident throughout the swing. Absolutely. And I think there's a difference too between tournament golf and just recreational golf. I mean, for people who don't really play tournament golf or just go out with family members or fun or their friends, and then they start getting into tournament golf either from a young age or later in life, um, those two games don't translate. They're very, very different. Uh, you know, you can, you don't even play the game necessarily the same way. So like you said, the ability to have the confidence to kind of, you know, go out there in an entirely different mindset where, you know, if you're just drinking beer, having fun, and you're at the beach playing around versus every shot counts and you're playing your ball against everybody else. And it's, it's a totally different experience. So just the confidence to know that I'm a good player in either game on either course, but it's a little bit different. And maybe you have to hit some different shots or maybe, you know, you're not going to go for a huge shot and pull back or play something that's a little bit safer. Um, or maybe you go for it. It's just, it, it's, it's just interesting when you um, consider you know, kind of putting confidence and putting that lens on it, how you're going to play your game differently if it's recreational or tournament or fun. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I think or, uh, repetition really plays into making that transition between playing golf and rounds with your buddies and then, you know, uh, making that jump to tournament golf. And I think the biggest thing too is, you know, if you have the opportunity to put five dollars down on a on just a shot or somebody says hey I bet you you can make this shot or I bet you you can't make the shot just just a little bit of more tenseness in the forearms and a, a little bit of thought in your head like oh I could pay off if I make it or I owe somebody if I don't you know any kind of little extra added fun pressure uh with your buddies during the round it will set you up for uh or for more success in a in a tournament situation and it makes it a little more fun for bragging rights down the road <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad we got to cover you talking about the core values and what you love, but I would like to, you know, kind of add a 10th core value in there. What is a core value that you think um, isn't a part of the first tee today, but that you would love to see being added to a core value that you see popping up in your, in, in your classes every day? So I really like vision uh, a lot. I think that has a great translation for the kids and for the game, um, very literally, you know, when you hit a ball, what's kind of the one thing you want to do is keep your head down. You know, everybody wants to hit it and look where it goes. And that's what they all do. And that's kind of the very first thing you say when they pick up a club is, you know, keep your head down. And so kind of from that, you can extrapolate and teach them different meanings and philosophies behind that. And then kind of the vision goes to the next level of, you know, well, where do you see yourself? And it, it teaches them a lot of introspection and kind of respect for their game, respect for each other. So I really, really like to touch on that uh, core value a lot. No, so that's awesome. it's, it's, one, it's one of the most immediately applicable and that can kind of go to different areas in the game. I think that's crucial when, when teaching kids, especially, you know, something that's very literal and something they can like just automatically put something to is it goes a long way in helping them understand, um, what the meaning behind, you know, maybe something that they didn't understand before they were taught it uh, gets into. So I think that's huge. Invisible. Right. Yeah, I see it. And actually, I'll tell, okay, sorry, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say, I see it on like, like the vision side, more of like on a creative act aspect. So when you're playing, you're trying to visualize your shot, you're trying to create a shot. So you're kind of envisioning and, you know, putting in these kids' minds to use their creative senses. Cause you know, we're living in a time where that's kind of uh, being pushed away due to technology as great as it is and as bad as it can be. Um, yeah, that's, I just like the, where you're saying about the vision of the a more creative side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's cool you to had, say. You had a story I could tell was right at the songs <laughs> there. <laughs> right. Um, so one of the leagues, uh, one of the Saturday mornings I was out there, I remember there was a small boy and he was kind of over in the side, off, kind of off of the hill, uh, just sitting crying. Back was to us, wasn't watching anyone. Um, was I don't know if he was upset or what was going on, but he was just had removed himself and didn't want to participate, didn't want to talk to anyone, uh, you know, just off on his own. So I went over there, started talking to him, um, and there's kind of playing into the vision idea. There's a couple different things, and you know, he wouldn't look at me. Finally, got got him to look up and just asked him what was wrong, and he said, you know, he didn't want to be here. I said, okay, well, you know, I understand, but let's just try. It. You know, golf is fun, and we have a station for you. I have a club. Just come on and try it. So finally, you know, he kind of stopped crying and he got up. So really wasn't looking at anyone or talking. So he came down, um, you know, and then kind of put the club in his hand. I said, okay, and it took a few practice swings and told to keep his head down. And he walked right up and we were doing it. Um, it was kind of like a chip shot. And basically there was a ring with three, it's kind of a target with three different areas and you would hit it and it would break through tinfoil and each ring would have a different score. So it was set up maybe, I don't know, maybe 15 feet ahead of us. So finally he steps up and I say, okay, take your shot, keep your head down. And he hit it and went right through the middle of the target. And he absolutely lit up, smiling, so happy, high fives. He just, he loved it. And it's things like that. I mean, in that moment, it's like, this is what I'm here for. This is the whole point of the program. This is, this is amazing. And um, I say vision because of that story, because that was one of the first things I told him. I said, you know, just keep your head down and hit the shot and relax. And he did it. And to see him go from so upset and crying on the side of a hill to absolutely striping the shot through the tinfoil and getting high fives from all of his friends was, that was so cool. That was awesome. At that point, it almost becomes a little bigger than golf. You know, you're putting, you're putting smiles on kids' faces and someone who maybe didn't want to be there or was just ruined by the fact that he had to spend his day doing something he didn't want to do. And then, you know, in the right. blink of an eye and one swing at a club, it's, uh, it's a whole different dynamic. Yeah, right. I should have gotten his really autograph. Awesome. Who knows? Right. <laughs> 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 Who's be the uh... next Tiger Woods? <laughs> So I think, you know, getting, getting a little bit from confidence uh, from the first tee, maybe into your own life and what you see on and off the golf course um, seems to be like, you know, it, it takes a good bit of confidence to be maybe a woman golfer that is trying to break that barrier between, you know, just starting the game and getting herself into whether it's a country club atmosphere or even just like the public course, um, maybe touch a little on the kind of confidence it takes to make that jump to first start the game at you know any level and um what women can do to kind of you know bridge that gap between just starting and getting out there on the golf course yeah i think you know the first step is just going out there and you, you have to have the confidence to just walk out into the course and hit shots and you know just not really worry too much about what people are going to think i mean 
you know, from my own personal experience, I've walked into a pro shop before, you know, a very nice golf course for a tea time. And, you know, I'm greeted, hey, can I help you find something? I'm like, no, I'm here for a tea time. <laughs> so just little, little things like that. Um, you just kind of have to be prepared and let them kind of just roll off your back if, you know, if you want to go out and play. And, you know, it's so hard because I think sometimes people don't realize that there still is, unfortunately, a little bit of prejudice just inherent in the game because women have not been on the scene. So this is just kind of some last vestiges, if you will, of hopefully last of kind of that Absolutely. prejudice and mentality. Um, so I think we are trending definitely away from it. And I think that's confident and should be confident, inspiring in and of itself that the game is changing and it is growing. And I think it is important for women to get out there and show everybody that, yeah, you know what? I belong here just as much as you do. I don't have to hit from the ladies' teeth. I can hit from the white or black or tips if I want. And uh, just, you know, the confidence to get out there and just know that you're not going to be great all the time and you have to work at it just like everybody else. But um, that we definitely now, I think more than ever, have a place in the game. And hopefully that continues to be the case. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you mentioned a little bit kind of like the the lasting little vestiges of, of so society's past of, you know, uh, not allowing either not allowing women on on the country club you know atmosphere or um not having women in the game but um we kind of see that i feel like with the lpga's new dress policy and i'd I'd love to know your thoughts on that and kind of maybe the differences between what the women on the tour are expected and kind of what the maybe more relaxed uh dress policy is for women that are just out there every day playing the game yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, the LPGA, when they came out with their new rules, they tried to clarify it by saying, well, it's just a clarification of the pre-existing rules. But if you read the language, it is very restrictive. I mean, it specifically says no joggers, no leggings, no racerbacks without a collar. No, no, no. Um, and kind of parenthetically, if you read the PGA's, you know, they, their dress code, that's very much as long as you wear something that comports with the standard of golf. So it's just, it's interesting how the wording is for the male and the female. And then in the female sector between the professional and the amateur, um, you know, there's no restriction and we see absolute relaxation on an amateur and recreational level, which I love it. I mean, I'm all the time out there in leggings and gym clothes and just go to yoga class and then go to the range. So (laughs) I think that's great. Um, But it is interesting how, at least in the female sector, um, we kind of do see that last vestiges of trying to keep it that very formal, very traditional, although, you know, the number of professional players in ratio to the number of amateur is, you know, it's very disproportionate. There's so many other amateur and more amateur players. So, I mean, even go on Instagram and, you know, just kind of check out people's (laughs) check out mine. I mean, we're all, we're all out there in our yoga pants and just having a good time. So it's interesting, you know, to see the way that that's trending. And I think Lexi Thompson did, a uh, photo shoot for Red Bull a couple years ago, right before the Olympics. And she kind of poking fun uh, later, which I'll get back to, but at the time she dressed in a very 1900s, very restrictive, formal female outfit, basically trying to say, all right, well, this is the last time that, you know, the Olympics had gold. But a couple years later, after the LPGA came out with their restrictions, she posted that picture on Instagram kind of making fun of it, saying, hey, look at the new dress code. This is great. I'm ready for it. So I'm, I'm glad to see that even though their professional women are having to deal with it, they can still kind of put the message out there that, hey, guys, maybe maybe we should consider this. And it's a little bit restrictive. Yeah. We can tr- trend so, towards something more absolutely uh, modern. 
hundred percent. And I think like you hit the nail on the head with just saying like in everyday golf, and I would love to see on both the men's and women's side, everyday golf, you know, style, or maybe just, you know, code kind of make its way into the tour. Um, even sometimes on the, on the men's side, it seems to be a little, um, stagnant as far as making progress to make the game more, you know, everyone friendly, amateur and professional. Uh, but especially it seems like that latest code change with the women has, has kind of almost taken a step back instead of, um, instead of a step forward. And it seems as though every woman that's playing the game at an amateur level, like you said, is in leggers and leggings and joggers. Um, and it just, I feel like that's just everything that women wear these days is just Mm -hmm. something along those lines. And it's, it's made its way across society. So it'd be nice to see it's way make its wake it make itself into women's golf if I could talk today (laughs) right yeah I uh it's kind of funny because it seems like the dress code policy is going backwards yet they're acknowledging that the professional golfers are you know these up top tier athletes you know they're out there they're training it's not like they're just showing up coming out of the car and going to the first tee you know they're putting in the work they're putting in the time they're they're in the gym and when they're they're not in the gym they're on the range or they're on the course practicing so these are top tier athletes you know and you want pretty much when you're training you're just in athletic gear so I just don't understand why they want to make you know take two steps backwards to try and you know make it more strict rather let them let them let the athletes be athletes at the end of the day right yeah and I mean I I think that's a great point and kind of what just popped in my head when you said that was like you know we look at men's golf and you look at the technology that's going into men's golf pants to make them more like athletic wear and more stretchy and more overall athletic I mean it's uh, it's the entire game in both sides is turning more athletic but um, what, what do you think of when you look at women's golf or women's, you know, athletic apparel, you think of yoga pants, you think of joggers. Um, so it, if the game's truly trying to go in an athletic route, it's, it's shocking, at least from my perspective, that it hasn't a, adopted a, lo- a more athletic look. And I think the point of joggers is interesting because we've seen that on PGA. I mean, I think Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler, and they're perfectly respectable. I mean, their pants, it's just, there's a different hemline and it's, you know, just a little bit more athletic, but to allow that, and that's almost kind of celebrated. So people are watching the PGA and watching these guys saying, oh, wow, look what he's wearing. I want to wear that. That's awesome. And then that's specifically restricted from the LPGA standpoint. It's just interesting um, with that particular one article of clothing that it's allowed for one and not for the other. Yeah. I mean, I think from the men's side of things, the joggers kind of like were cool and hip and like opened up the the path for like Jordan's sneakers to like start making an appearance because you start having the high tops and guys can wear joggers with the high tops and it still looks good. And like, I think, you know, it's funny that you do see, you do say that on the men's side and it's cool. It's awesome. It's hip. And uh, like you said, it's one thing it just doesn't make it on the women's side for something. So it's, there's an interesting juxtaposition for a lot of things that seem to be, I don't know if the word's kosher, but just allowable on the, on the men's side that just seem to don't transition over to women's golf. And uh, at least on a professional side of things, like, like we said, I think it's pretty adapted between all of us amateurs, um, except you, Logue, that, uh, <laughs> that uh, you know, we can just go out, dress comfortably and have a good time. And, you know, that's what it, that's the fun of the game at the end of the day. 
Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, while we're on the topic of prejudice for many, many years, um, Augusta national has been primarily a male only facility it, with the exception of this past summer, I think sometime, um, in early May, they hosted a college event for women there finally, um, and gave them an opportunity to go out and play. I don't know if it, how long it was for maybe a day or two, but I thought it was neat to see women finally get out and play out there and to give them an awesome opportunity. Um, Jen, do you have any thoughts surrounding that event? I think that's fantastic. I mean, and I actually think they started allowing female uh, membership in the club within the last couple of years. So really, really neat to see that, you know, Augusta national is kind of the Holy grail of golf and it's, it's, held in such high regard and then for them to acknowledge not only acknowledge women but include them in the makeup of their history and the makeup of you know the golf tapestry and competitive golf I mean I think that's fantastic um, I know at least on Instagram a lot of people a lot of girls a lot of women everyone was really really excited posting giving shout outs so um, at least from my perspective everybody was very very well received everyone was really excited and I think it's great yeah, I think I think you are right. I think they did uh, believe it was Senator Condoleezza Rice was their first woman mm-hmm. um, yep. to be inducted as the as the like, invited member. Um, so and that, like you said, I think that was still only last summer. Um, so it's it's very new, but I think it's very great to see that the tide is kind of turning. And um, it would be great, as you said, Augusta is like the Holy Grail. So uh, when the Holy Grail starts moving and turning tides, you know there's some movement being made, which is always fantastic to see. It's, it's crazy with golf and the thing we, we love about the game so much is as you get older, the game becomes much more um, relationship oriented. There's so many different connections that you can make through the game and um, so many amazing people that you can meet. Um, would you say that you're one that would mix, um, you know, business or your professional life with golf? And have you made any... Um, any new clients through the game or um, have any, you know, bigger doors opened for you because of the game? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I've worked in a couple of different law offices over the years and golf has kind of always been a big theme with the people who are in the firm. Uh, there's a lot of charity events. We do kind of legal charity events. So we have lawyers, judges, uh, clients. It's a great business opportunity, um, you know, even from just charity events to one-on-one. And certainly, um, and that's a great point to relate with clients as well. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people understand and are familiar with golf. So kind of if there's, you know, dead space, we need to bring up a topic or just connect with somebody for something that's not about their case. You know, if somebody's stressed out or we're waiting for court or, you know, if I know one of my clients is a big golfer and, and they're upset about their case, you just, hey, you know, what'd you shoot this weekend? How'd it go? And you can just see kind of the stress melt away. And it's nice to remove them from the stress of every day. So absolutely, it's very applicable to all areas of my professional career. I think that was really neat what you said there, too, about, you know, you see the stress wiped away when people start talking about golf. And, and I think the bigger picture of what we're trying to drive home is like, that's, that's what you can do when you step onto the golf course for four hours. It's like, you know, the stress is really wiped away whenever you pick up your clubs and whether you're walking or whether you're riding in a cart, you know, um, we, we love to know that that's your time out in the golf course and it can just be whatever it may be. 
all all of the world can stop around you because you're just playing golf with whether yourself or with friends and family and um and that's the beauty of the game that not a lot of other uh sports can kind of attain is is the elongated period of time in which everything kind of just stops and and you can enjoy the game for what it is absolutely um, so now you said you're a Charlotte native. We have to ask with the President's Cup just wrapping up by the time this releases 2021, correct? President's Cup's coming yes. to you guys? How yes, Quail Hollow. And what can you tell us about maybe a little bit of interaction you may have with the President's Cup or, or what you're happen, hoping to see out of uh, the President's Cup in 2021? Absolutely. So I said Quail Hollow. So it's the same golf course where they hold Wells Fargo. And I know, so actually I just went to the first tee event. Uh, Harold Varner was there. We had some great exposure for first tee as well as the program, um, as well as, you know, President's Cup. And I think it's going to be amazing for the city. It's going to be amazing. Um, I'm just beyond excited that Charlotte is actually hosting it. I mean, that's going to be huge. So very, very cool. And for my involvement, I'm hoping to be a volunteer. I know first tee can help that and kind of Charlotte's small enough with enough of the volunteer opportunities that once you kind of get on the list that's circulated so I volunteered at Wells Fargo before I volunteered at the PGA tournament so I'm hoping that that will pay off and that I can um, have an opportunity to somehow volunteer uh, for the President's Cup. Very cool so now you said you volunteered at the um, at the you said it was Wells Fargo correct? Um, Yes. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that experience and, you know, kind of maybe being inside the ropes, depending on where you were volunteering and uh, how just being a volunteer on the, uh, on the tour is as far as atmosphere. Oh my God. It's so much fun. So cool. I don't think people realize just how much goes into putting on a tournament. I mean, we turn on the TV and just see, you know, the stars hitting these great shots, but uh, behind it is an entire production. It's an entire business. Um, everybody's role is so important. I mean, honestly, from running clips, clipboards back and forth to um, driving cars to actually working out on the course. So I worked in hospitality at the PGA. So I was um, kind of helping run things just in the hospitality tent and behind the scenes and odds and end tasks, running things, uh, driving, like I said, driving carts, taking water out, um, helping other people if they came in, wanting merchandise. So kind of whatever had to be done, that was really, really cool. I got to see a lot of neat things. But it's it, behind the scenes, it's a huge production. And then I actually I volunteered at a Pro-Am uh, tournament about two years ago, and I was a four-caddy. And nobody Ooh. explained to me what a four-caddy – nobody explained what a four-caddy was. <laughs> so I showed up, and I was handed these flags, and they said, all right, go out there and just four-caddy. So I'm walking out there trying to get direction for what I'm supposed to do. And that was the most stressful thing I've ever done in golf. I don't care if it's, it's what was worse than a first tee shot. It was worse than hitting a terrible shot. Just to think like I have to stay ahead of these people. I have, I can't mess this up. I have to find the ball. I have to go to the next screen and watch them play. And oh my God, it was the most stressful 18 holes of my entire life. It was great. Got to watch great golf, but it was learning on the spot. So for us may not know what a four caddy is, give us the in-depth right. like, job of what a four caddy does, especially at one of these professional events. Well, since I'm the expert now, sure. You <laughs> essentially have to stay in front of everybody that's hitting and all the players. And so you kind of have to watch their ball and point it out. So essentially, if it's in the fairway, if it's in the rough, and then if it's for the pro-am, you can run out and put a flag where their ball is and let them you know, walk up and find it. But you essentially just have to kind of make sure the path is cleared 
as they hit through and watch their ball in case there's a question for where it went. It just helps with the speed of play and make sure everything kind of runs according to schedule. Um, but the, honestly, the timing is really hard. Like I said, you have to keep stay essentially a couple steps and shots ahead of them and then walk to the green and wait. And then as they're putting in, go to the next hole and wait for them to come up. And then as they're doing their tee shot, walk down the fairway and kind of anticipate how they're going to hit. And I mean, once you follow the group for a couple holes and you see how far they're hitting, you kind of know how many yards you need to walk down. But on the first few holes, that was it was rough. Now, did you have to find the throw and the AMS ball? Because I imagine that could get a little dicey when the AMS are playing and they might be spraying it all over the place. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> you got to watch very carefully. Yep. Hence the stress. But luckily, <laughs> exactly. the group I was following. Luckily, the group I was following was they weren't bad. They were great players. So it was a lot of fun. You got. But. You got. A, you may, might have got off easy. I know you said you were stressed, but maybe if uh, right. if, the, if the AMS were a little worse, it could have been a nightmare. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I can just picture myself maybe getting stuck with like Ams who sprayed a little bit and I'm just sprinting across the fairway, like east and west. That could be a workout within right. itself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this was in July too, so you can imagine. Oh yep. boy. Not the cool months <laughs> in Charlotte. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I guess when you got back into golf, you know, you said you, you took a little bit of time off to play some sports and stuff like that. Um, did you find yourself following kind of the professional tours, like pretty adamantly as well, once you got back into it? And if so, did you find yourself following the men's side or did you find yourself following the men's and women's side? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I jumped back into the professional PGA and I started just following the men. Uh, kind of one of the first guys I started following was Rory. Um, you know, just kind of one of the top guys getting back into it. And the uh, kind of, I guess, Rory and um, Lexi from the women's side, but there's really not a whole lot of female coverage, which is, you know, kind of a separate issue, but Absolutely. just the men's was, more, men's was more accessible. So that's kind of just started watching them. Yeah, and I think to kind of go back into your uh, comment about not being a lot of women's coverage, I think for the first time ever, they saw their uh, their tour championship reach over, I think it was $5 million in overall payouts. So it's really nice to see their side of things kind of starting to gain maybe a little bit of uh, overall coverage and money put into it. I think at the end of the day, it's right. unfortunate, but like on their side, it really boils down to how much money they're putting out as far as ratings and stuff like that. But um, right. it's nice to see them starting to gain a little bit of leverage as far as overall purse and everything like that. Cause I think it's a big step in getting them. I mean, they're still only halfway to what the tour championship pays out, but uh, huge strides, right. I think. And maybe you can comment that a little more as far as the day-to-day -day women's coverage compared to, to men's golf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, a 40-hour week, how many hours do you think females are on? I mean, I don't know if I can even count on one hand. So it's, um, it's something I would really like to see. And I think that's one of the biggest things that are holding the females back is just coverage and it's just exposure. And like you said, I mean, there's a pay gap and um, just an overall awareness and incentive to watch the females. I, I really hope that changes. Uh, but, you know, I think we've come a long way. And like you said, it, it's getting better. And I think we're going to continue trending to get better. Obviously, you want to wake up the next day and have it fixed and equal. And that's, you know, that's just unfortunately not reality. But hopefully, uh, if we continue to trend the way we are, it'll, we'll get there. I'm, shock 
I'm so. shocked that a lot of like weekend AMs don't follow more of the LPGA more often. Cause if you look at the statistics, the females hit the ball <laughs> as far, if not further than just your typical average male, you know, weekend player. I'll probably get some backlash from my friends because I'm like, no, I don't hit it. But, uh, but no, but if they, they, they have the statistics, they're like, that's kind of cool. So you can kind of generate, you know, watch them and take your game and learn from them based on kind of the distances that they hit. Cause I know, you know, I've, it's just, yeah, you're right. There's just like a lack of coverage, but what's, what's that Dalton? No, I said the girls are just pounding it off the tee. Like, I, I mean, know they, yeah. some of the shorter hitters these days on like the women's tour, I'm like, man, I got to throttle up on it sometimes just to, just to stay, uh, <laughs> stay a beat with that further than me. It really is. And, uh, I don't know. I think we can talk a little bit about um, overall coverage in general. I don't I think it's men's or women's. I mean, it's tough to watch golf for three or four hours, whether it's men's or women's. Now, I mean, you get to the team events like President's Cup, Solheim Cup, Ryder Cup. It's easy to watch because it's, you know, it's, it's action packed. It just feels like there's that energy there. But like week in and week out coverage, I mean, it's just I feel like it's tough to sit down. And, and even for me as a major golf fan to sit down and watch extended amounts of golf coverage. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, I think you need to have that, you need to have either a background in golf or an interest to kind of get you to turn it on and then to hold your attention. I agree, you know, sometimes it can get a little bit monotonous, but, um, you know, I, I think the media and the marketing of the President's Cup and hopefully, you know, the Masters, it, it is growing to more of the general public. I mean, honestly, even kind of going out around Masters season, just even going to a bar or a restaurant, I mean, there's more Masters hats and more people just standing around TVs watching it. And so especially with the comeback, you know, quote unquote, of Tiger, it, it's, it, it's all helping. And so, you know, maybe that will bring a few more viewers and just raise overall awareness and interest uh, in the game. Absolutely. I don't know how much longer he's going to be playing, but it can definitely be not right. even argued that he's definitely better for the game when he's on TV. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So something we ask everyone, uh, and you are no subject to uh, skipping this one, we always ask uh, your high and low competitive rounds and where they came and kind of a little backstory behind them each. So we'll let you choose which one you want to start with first, but uh, yeah, we always like to know the high and lows in, in your competitive play. Score or just experience? Uh, score and experience. Oh, to <laughs> okay, um, let's see. So I'll start with the highest. The high score would be probably over 100. Um, just really, really terrible day. And, you know, it, it's, I hate using words, you know, terrible in high school because, you know, for golf, I try and spin it to be as positive as I can. Um, I don't know how positive you can be with over a hundred, but we just, it, it wasn't working the way I wanted it to, but, um, you know, I, I learned a lot that day. It was, I mean, I think golf forces you to meet yourself at your best and your worst. And it is something that gives you immediate feedback. So when I was playing, not well. Um, I started kind of 
listening to my thoughts and what was I telling myself? And, you know, you hit a terrible shot. And then what do you say? I mean, are you going to beat yourself up over it? Or do you just keep trying? So it's one of those things, you know, things in golf and in life do not go according to plan. And you just, you have to deal with it as it comes. And um, not proud of the score, but I am proud of when I finished the round. I, I felt good because I was able to talk myself through and I learned a lot about myself and a lot about how to play when you're not playing well. And, you know, you, you want to hit a good shot. You want to hit a recovery shot. If you hit a bad shot, you want to come back from it. And if that's just not happening, you're still a good golfer. You still are going to wake up and go play the next day and keep practicing. So, you know, it, it's not a reason I felt like I needed to just absolutely get down on myself. It wasn't enjoyable, but, um, taking away from them. I mean, I don't have the scorecard, obviously, but I have the experience and I have the lessons. So um, that was a great, it was a great learning opportunity for me. And then best competitive round when everything was working, everything was great. Uh, I want to say it was an 84. Don't quote me on that, but that sounds about right. And you were striking. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. It was, it was fantastic. I mean, and it, again, like just, not having to think about anything. And I think the contrast between those two games was I was overthinking and trying to plan and, and move every shot. And then just when I was in my best round, I just, I didn't have any thoughts. It was just an absolute peaceful experience. And um, you know, what, what golf should be when you play well. And it was, it was great. Now, I think I, I love yeah. the way you kind of approach the, the worst round. And I think the way, whether we realize it in the moment or down the road, uh, a lot of the worst experiences, whether on the golf course or off, you know, if, if we teach ourselves to get through them and to work our, work our minds through them, then it, it sets us up, whether immediately or much further down the road, for a lot better success. And we always learn from the tough experiences. And especially I know some, some of my worst rounds, you look back on it, it's like, man, why did I ever do that in the first place? And it's like, but it just teaches you because you'll never do it again. Or at least you'd like to think that you have a pretty good understanding of not to do it again. But uh, I think right. I love that mentality of a way to approach a horrible round. And uh, I think the other guys can attest to that. Yeah, for sure. Right. I mean, you know, there's, and, and there's something to be said for that, keeping a level head. You know, one thing that I really like to do during a round is I have a journal. And I kind of every hole, I'll write down good, bad things that I should do to improve things that didn't work. And I was doing that as well. And number one, it's a great way just to keep track of how you're doing and, and things to improve on and things that you did well. But it's kind of cool to go back and read it a couple months or years later. And like I said, you really learn a lot about yourself. But that's something that I would definitely recommend to anybody um, you know, beginner scratch. It's something that I picked up that I think is a great thing. And just to kind of memorialize your round and just write down your swing thoughts. But it, it's, it can really teach you a lot about yourself as a player. If you keep a journal and, and keep track of it, if you remember during the round, you know, not try and think back a week or two later, but oh, you know, what did I do on that hole? Or, you know, what, what do I need to work on? But as you're doing it, just kind of keep track of what's going on. It's pretty cool. Yeah, those in-the-moment thoughts are always a little bit stronger and a little more uh, recognizable than, than, like you said, two weeks down the road, for sure. And it's funny you say that. Right. One, of the, um, one of the best players in this area that I had just met when I moved down, 
he keeps this little red book. And it was always, you know, when I first moved down, it was always Carl's little red book. If you need a swing tip, just go to Carl and his little red book. And then the more I kind of, you know, got to know him and got to uh, understand who he was and play with him a little more, um, it was just that. It was his swing thoughts throughout the round, every round recorded. Um, and it, it was just his little red Bible of things. He's like, listen, he's like, anytime I reference a shot or need to reference a swing thought or something to just calm me down or just, you know, anything during a round of golf, he's like, I just, that book is my Bible for it. And it was a pretty neat thing that I had never thought about until kind of seeing him with his. And um, I'm still not faithful with it. I uh, would love to get better at it myself, but um, it's pretty cool to look back on it when you do have those notes to uh, just say, oh, well, I, maybe I can learn from this. So that's a pretty, right. pretty neat little idea there. Yeah, that would, that doesn't even cross my mind and <laughs> never even crossed my mind. Because <laughs> um, I definitely do get hot out there on the golf course. I have friends that can attest to that a lot of them um yeah but yeah that's awesome to hear because then you can kind of just like you were saying you try and keep a positive attitude the entire time even though everything is going not your way you know you can kind of look back you're like oh actually you know what it was just run one round or it just was one bad shot that actually that made the round you know because a lot of people you know we live in that negative society and negative outweighs the positive a lot so if you can kind of go back and kind of have that memory of that positive outcome, like, you know what it was, exactly. it was actually a pretty good day. Um, I can definitely work on that <laughs> a lot. Right. <laughs> I right. do. I do remember rounds where I was in, actually it was a club championship round and I didn't do great the first day, but you know, I was kind of there in the mix, came out the second day, got to the 17th hole, you know, put one in the water off the tee, took my drop, tried to be, took, take the hero shot. I ended up with like a nine on the hole just because I let my emotions get to me and, you know, it just happens. But, you know, that, that journal and just having the positive outcome can definitely, you know, outweigh a lot more of just one negative bad shot that comes across your round. Yeah, I can, uh, I can speak to that as well too. I started uh, uh, really playing professional golf this year, traveling full time and maintaining a full playing schedule. And I've, started doing uh, a little journal book of my own that I write in after each round, but I take that a step further. And um, if I have days where I'm really hitting the ball well, you can take a swing video on the range real quick before you go off and play or after you finish, if you ended up shooting a good round and uh, develop a reference point for where your swings at for that day. Is that something you've ever considered doing? No, that's a great idea. Yeah, I'll definitely have to. Yeah, just a little something extra anybody can do, regardless of, you know, age, skill, what have you. Uh, it's, a, it's a good tip that I learned from a, a rather experienced guy in the game playing out of uh, Virginia. Yeah, I think that's huge. I'll I have to do that, yeah. Or a video. Okay. I mean, the smartphones have completely changed the way we document everything. And, I mean, whether you have a little red book or you're putting in notes on your phone or you're taking videos, I think uh, any kind of note or – um, that the word is, but just like recollection of what you were doing in that exact moment that led to success is always something that should be, uh, should be noted. So I think that just about wraps us up for today. I uh, really appreciate you joining us again. Uh, where can people find you on social media or where to follow you? Sure. So uh, my handle is at birdie girl underscore fit, all lowercase and give me a follow.
Awesome. Well, again, guys, that's Jennifer Arrington. And as she said, at birdie girl underscore fit. I know we enjoyed it today and really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yep. And as always, enjoy the walk. One shot at a time.